This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Eric Schnitzer to the program. Glad to have you with us again, Eric. Oh, thank you, Bob. Thank you for inviting me to speak. Since 1997, Eric Schnitzer has been a park ranger historian at Saratoga National Historical Park, the national park that commemorates the battles around Saratoga, New York, in 1777, the turning point in the American Revolution. Eric Schnitzer and historical painter Don Troiani have combined their talents in a new book, on Saratoga, the Revolutionary War Campaign, called Campaign to Saratoga, 1777. How did this book come to be, Eric? Oh, right. So I've been friends with Don Triani for a few decades now, and uh, he called me up uh, about two years ago and said that he wanted to put together a book on the uh, Northern Campaign, or if you will, Burgoyne Campaign, or Saratoga Campaign of 1777. It goes by a few different names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, he asked if I would want to be the author of it. And I was uh, very excited to, to, do, to take on that responsibility. Um, he would, of course, be the artist. He's a world-famous artist. He does amazing paintings of battle scenes and soldier figures. From He's, he's very you know, famous also in Civil War communities, but also the American War for Independence, which is his true love. And so he wanted to put this book together on the Saratoga Campaign of 1777. So um, I certainly agreed to it and uh, worked on writing uh, the text as well as all of the artifact and painting captions. Don, of course, did all of the uh, modern-day paintings, the artworks of the soldiers and of the followers, women uh, Mm -hmm. and children who were with Mm -hmm. the uh, campaigning military forces, and, of course, the battle scenes. And, uh, you know, we we put our talents together and uh, came up with the book that way. Would you describe it as primarily a picture book, or is it a history book with some pictures? Oh, boy. <laughs> Oof, that's a good question. My goodness. Um, you know, I, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Originally, I was asked by the publisher to write a 40,000-word book, and there were going to be as many paintings and artifacts in the book as possible. So if it went that way as planned, it, I think, would have had uh, proportionally more pictures in it and less text. However, during the course of writing the book, I told the publisher, I can't do it in 40,000 words. I just can't in a way that would be satisfactory to me. And so I, I it was nearing 80,000 words at that point. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and I told them, and they said, you know what? That, that more is better. We like that. So please write more. And I said, okay. So I wrote, and it ended up being, uh, with the captions for all of the artifacts and paintings, it ended up being over 100,000 words, not counting the citations, mm-hmm. uh, which are, you know, the end notes, which are another, I don't know how many more uh, words than that. But um, I, I think that uh, there, it's, it's really a, a, just a great balance balance between mm-hmm. the two. Almost every page has a photograph of an artifact or two or three or, or one of Don's paintings. Um, there's hardly a page that goes by without, without having a nice visual that complements the text. Mm. Now, the, a lot of books have been written about, I believe, what are now what are properly called the battles of Saratoga because there was more than one battle. What do yes, you sir. see this book as adding to that uh, literature? 
Ah, what a great question. You know, there are so many books on the Northern Campaign of 1777, which culminated in the battles of Saratoga and the surrender of Burgoyne's army at Saratoga. Many books. I mean, there are, there are books, even others published within the past couple of years, including this year. Uh, there's there's at least one other book that was published. And, you know, it's because the battles of Saratoga and Burgoyne's surrender are so famous in American and world history. So it garners such interest, you know, that's why there's so many books. So indeed, why is this one different? Why does this book matter? What's the difference? Well, there, there are so many differences. Um, first of all, Don's paintings. Mm-hmm. Don's paintings are just sublime. He has, he's just a brilliant artist, but he's also a historian. And he marries the two together, the very right-brained and left-brained disciplines that he puts together, combines them. And so he not only is a great artist, which is very you know, right-brained kind of talent, but he uses his historian's mind, which is a more of a left-brained capability, and he puts them together so his paintings are accurate. In other words, you you can write a book, you can go online and get freebie, you know, artworks that you can populate in a book that you don't have to pay for. And they're, you know, woodcuts and prints and maybe old-timey pictures from the 1920s or 1950s or 1830s or whatever. And you can fill your book with them, but they're they're bonkers inaccurate. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want your text to be accurate, which every author would, of course, say, yes, <laughs> accurate text, why would you want your pictures to be mm-hmm. any less so? Mm-hmm. And Don is such a keen... Uh, historian that he makes sure that the the figures, the uniforms, the accoutrements, the weapons, everything, the scene itself, the cultural and natural landscape is is accurate. So he'll go out there and he'll have a photograph made of the original spot where something happened, and then he'll of course make sure that it has the correct 1777 appearance, more trees, bigger trees, what have you. Mm -hmm. And then he'll put in the figures wearing perfect reproduction uniforms made by the most brilliant uh, artisans and craftspeople around, Uh, leather accoutrements and and cloth uniforms, the weapons that you see in the paintings like swords and muskets, they're originals. He actually models, when he has people model for him, he actually owns most of the things that you see in the painting insofar as the weapons. So those weapons are actually the real things that were used mm-hmm. in those battles. It's pretty crazy. So his, his, his artwork is just amazing. Artifacts. We in this book have over 300 full-color artifacts and paintings and maps, uh, historic maps. And most of these artifacts have never been seen before. And they have an association with the American War for Independence or with the campaign specifically. So for example, in the book, there's a wooden canteen that was worn by a Connecticut militia soldier in both battles of Saratoga. Uh, and that canteen is, is in the book, a photograph of it's in the book. Same with muskets and buttons and you know, remnants of flags and, and, and uh, other artifacts. Mm-hmm. Also, um, as the author, I brought to bear the largest scope of uh, manuscript sources uh, available, more so, if I may, than any author has ever conceived of doing. Now, any author is going to use journals and letters and memoirs written by the people at the time in, you know, in 1777, or in the case of memoirs, things that were written afterward. Um, 
Some authors might use pension depositions written by the veterans when they were applying for their pensions. They had to depose about mm-hmm. their experiences. Um, that's more of a, a new concept for authors to do, and I, I've, I've done that very liberally. In fact, Don wanted me to do that, and I was very happy to do that. But I've also used things that are not traditionally used by historians, such as orderly books and uh, muster rolls inspection returns of the various units that fought in the battles. So, for example, uh, the American army that fought in, uh, I'm sorry, the American army that was present at Fort Ticonderoga and Mount Independence as the campaign was commencing in June of 1777, Mm -hmm. those American units were inspected by a guy uh, shortly before Burgoyne approached. And those inspections, which talked about the quality of the uniforms and the weapons and the quality of the soldiers and the officers, were sometimes very biting. And when you see how you know the American army evacuated and why the American army evacuated, and you realize the the kinds of American units that were up there and how they weren't necessarily the best, you know, ready to go into battle and to be relied upon, yeah, yeah and you can get mm-hmm. that from the inspection returns, you have a, a better sense about why things happened the way they did. And so those inspection returns are very, very helpful. And they have them for the British Army too. In fact, you get the same thing where some of the inspection returns aren't exactly good. They're mm-hmm. not very favorable to some of these British and German units. So you get a better understanding about the quality of the soldiers and officers fighting in the battles, the various battles, Hubberton, Bennington, the battles of Saratoga, the Battle of Fort Anne, etc. So... Um, those are the kinds of sources that I've used uh, to, to, to formulate the uh, text. The big addition, I think, more than any other book, in fact, it is more than any other book, is the use of German sources. Mm-hmm. You know, authors have long had British and a lot of the American sources available, but not so much the German ones, because they have to be translated. Sure. And getting, yeah. And well, getting and maybe I could just interject. I think Please. we've talked with you in the past uh, episode of historians about your interest in the German soldiers. Yes, sir. Oh, yes. I, I, I love them. Not because I have an ancestor that, as far as I know, who served, although I, you know, I am a first generation German American. Um, and I, I cannot, I cannot read the original German Handschrift. In fact, very few Germans uh, to this very day can read, read it because it's arcane uh, fraktur lettering, and it's not easy for modern Germans to read. Most modern Germans can't read it. So, uh, thankfully, m- uh, a lot, maybe I'd say most, most uh, solidly most of the original German sources have been translated by people like uh, Bruce Burgoyne, the late Bruce Burgoyne, and the late Helga Doblin, and Henry Retzer, and the late Tom Barker. Uh, and uh, uh, Donald Landal Schmidt and other people, mm-hmm. uh, Klaus Reuter. I mean, these guys are, are and, and uh, in, uh, Helga are just fantastic with their translations. And many of them are published. Most of them aren't. Uh, but if you know where to go to get them, you know, they tell you amazing information about what was really going on with the British side of things. Mm-hmm. It might be a surprise to learn that the British sources are not that common. In other words, you have a lot of American sources. You don't have many British sources. There are rather few and far between. The British sources are comparatively uh, minuscule to the Mm. American ones. 
But the German ones, oh boy, Germans, they wrote a lot. They really? kept a lot of well, official and, and reports, and well, they're the, very handy to use. With the lack of British sources, could it be that the British were not fond to remember this because this was a great defeat? You know, uh, Bob, I think that would be a fantastic thesis uh, to, to, to try to work through. Uh, I, I don't know if we know the answer to that. And it might be because of exactly what you said. It might be because of the loss sustained in this campaign. But if I may, I would then say, well, then why didn't people ke- keep more journals about the campaign? Because they thought they were going to win, mm-hmm. you know, at the beginning. Right. Let's say they thought they were going to win, and it ended up that they didn't. But they thought at the beginning that they would, yet we have so few uh, British journals. Now, did some of these guys keep journals? Then the campaign ends badly for them, and they say, well, I don't want to remember that, and they burn the, <laughs> the journal afterwards. We don't know, of course. Uh, but it would make a great study to figure out, try to figure out, uh, to answer the question, why are there so many American accounts, so many German accounts, but comparatively few British accounts? And ultimately, that's one of the big problems that historians have had. Uh, is the lack of sources from the crown forces, you know, the, the few British sources uh, and uh, the German sources that have been traditionally un, uh, unaccessible hmm. because hmm. of the translation issue. We're talking with Eric Schnitzer. He, along with the historical painter Don Troiani, have combined their talents in a new book on uh, Saratoga, the Revolutionary War campaign called Campaign to Saratoga 1777. If you're listening to the uh, podcast uh, right at its debut, I might mention that uh, Eric Schnitzer will be doing a talk on Thursday, October 3rd at the Fort Plain Museum in the Mohawk Valley, and uh, you can find out information on the Fort Plain Museum uh, website. Uh, Back with Eric in just a moment. On the Historian's Podcast, we depend on your contributions to keep going with our uh, series on the Internet. We have a GoFundMe page, gofundme.com forward slash 2019 dash the dash historians. You can donate there or make a check out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Eric Schnitzer is with us, a park ranger historian at Saratoga National Historical Park. He and artist Don Troiani out with a new book called Campaign to Saratoga 1777. Uh, I chuckled just a bit there because we were talking about the length of the book. I was going to ask you, Eric, can, can you give us a brief summary of what what happened in this campaign? Sure. Well, uh, it uh, begins, uh, well, in, in 1777. I, I start the book a little bit before to set up context, but uh, the Revolutionary War is being fought, began in 1775. By 1777, what had been colonies populated by colonists were now states uh, forming the United States of America, and it was very much a war for independence. We were trying to break ourselves from Britain and uh, uh, you know, have our own country. Of course, the British are trying to prevent us from doing this. And one of the ways they plan to try to stop us is have this what they called Army from Canada, commanded by Lieutenant General John Burgoyne, move from Canada and capture Albany. Now, Albany was not chosen because it was a a stronghold or because it was even a a capital. It wasn't even the capital of the state of New York at the time. That That was down in Kingston. But Albany was chosen 
because it was the most populated uh, uh, city mm -hmm. between Canada and the city of New York. And further, it was a perfect midpoint. The British felt that if they could control the distance between Canada and Albany, and they would soon control Albany to the city of New York, they could control the entire uh, corridor, which if you think about it, is pretty much connected by waterways. It's not a complete connection until the Champlain mm. Canal of the 19th century, but still – between the Hudson River and Lakes George and Champlain, you have almost an entire water connection. And if you want to transport yourself in the 18th century uh, in, in the quickest manner possible, you do it by water. Uh, it's the most efficient way to do it. So the British had this army, and they're, they're coming out of Canada. And uh, our army, originally commanded by uh, Albany's favorite uh, 18th century son, Philip Schuyler, uh, he commanded the army mm -hmm. uh, uh, originally uh, up here in, in uh, the upper part of New York. Uh, the American army, most of it was then located at Forts Ticonderoga and Independence, which uh, Fort Independence was right across Lake Champlain from Fort Ticonderoga. Uh, the Americans hoped to stop the, any British advance from Canada at that time. We're talking June of 1777. Did not work out at all. The British totally outmaneuvered us, uh, outmaneuvered us and our army had to retreat. Uh, the British pursued us. You had a couple of battles fought, like the Battle of Fort Anne, the Battle of Hubberton, uh, both of which were British victories, in fact. Our army withdrew, withdrew, continued to withdraw through the summer of 1777, withdraw south. Uh, reinforcements were slow in coming, uh, and uh, Congress, uh, seated in Philadelphia at the time, decided that, uh, you know, Philip Schuyler was a loser general. They had to get rid of him. They thought he was a major problem with our losses, mm -hmm. so we needed somebody who was more successful. So they picked Horatio Gates, mm -hmm. a Virginian, originally from England. He had been a British Army officer. So they chose Horatio Gates, and Horatio Gates assumed command of the army. Horatio Gates assumed command of the army on the heels of word of the Battle of Bennington. The Battle of Bennington was fought in the middle of August. And although the British had been successful in almost every single battle and skirmish until that point, they lost big time in the Battle of Bennington. And the not only tactically, I mean, they lost nearly 1,000 people in the battle, the British did. Uh, but it also – that battle forced Burgoyne to delay his advance on Albany by an entire month, mm. and it allowed the American army to garner new reinforcements and with their new commander, Horatio Gates, adopt a more aggressive strategy. And thankfully, Horatio Gates decided that defending Albany almost at its doorstep was a bad idea. So they, he moved the army north eventually to Bemis Heights which is where Saratoga uh, National Historical Park is now located. And by the time General Burgoyne was ready to move on Albany, it was mid-September, and he uh, approached the American forces uh, uh, toward, uh, near Bemis Heights. Uh, he didn't get that far, though. The Americans moved out to attack him, and then you have the First Battle of Saratoga, which was a tactical British win, but a strategic win for the American side. Two and a half weeks later, you have the Second Battle of Saratoga, and the British were completely defeated in every uh, measurable way. After that battle, the British retreated. They were trying to get out of here because they realized, holy cow, you know, we can't, we can't sustain uh, any kind of advance upon Albany. It's not going to work. So the uh, British uh, make their way 
uh, up to Saratoga, now known as Schuylerville. The American army pursues them, forces them uh, eventually to come to terms, and the British surrender at Saratoga, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, was the first ever British army surrender in world history. A British army had never surrendered before. Mm. That's the turning point of the war. And with that surrender of Burgoyne's army at Saratoga, it brought about the French alliance. The French alliance triggered eventually the successful siege of Yorktown, Virginia, which gave us eventually our independence. Well, thank you. Thank you for that uh, summary. Um, when you said that bat- was the Battle of Bemis Heights, which is where the historical park's located, was a tactical victory, but how can a tactical victory be a strategic defeat for the British? Ah, sure. Yeah, excellent question. The way that you measure a victory in the 18th century is who holds the field of battle. So in other words, if you have a battle being fought, in this case, it was the, the Battle of Freeman's Farm, just north of Bemis Heights, the first battle of Saratoga fought on the uh, 19th of September. The British win the battle. The battle was eight hours long. And after that grueling fight, the British were victorious. In other words, they hold the field of battle. They won the battlefield. It's the American army that retreated. The American army retreats. But it was kind of like a Bunker Hill victory. You know, the British won the Battle of Bunker Hill in 1775 as well, but they only won a couple of hills. And uh, they, 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 the army there that they were fighting, you know, their army mm-hmm. was decimated. They lost about a thousand officers and men plus, whereas the American army in the Battle of Bunker Hill lost a, a few hundred. Uh, the Battle of Freeman's Farm was similar. The British lost nearly 600 casualties, killed, captured, and wounded, whereas the Americans lost about half that, a little more than half that. So the American army lost the Battle of Freeman's Farm on a tactical level because the British won the field. But strategically, Mm -hmm. the British lost because Mm -hmm. the British were so uh, spent in that fight, they, they were stymied. After that battle, they 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 uh, after the battle, uh, the, the 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 subsequent battle was fought two and a half weeks later. The reason why it was fought two and a half weeks later is because the British had been so stymied in that battle of Freeman's Farm. Now, as for the Americans, they did retreat from the field of battle. They lost tactically. They had to give up the field to the British, who were victorious tactically. But they only retreated to Bemis Heights, which was not but a mile away. They simply retreated back to their defenses, back to their camp. They didn't retreat in a panic, you know, fleeing for their mm-hmm. lives downstreaming down to Albany, not at all. They got back to their defenses and they just, you know, they, they lost tactically, but strategically they had the upper edge because the British were stymied. Mm-hmm. In fact, if I may, uh, the chapter on the Battle of Freeman's Farm in my book is called Stymied. <laughs> and if I could um, ask you about something we really ha- we haven't discussed, but you know it's a big part uh, of the story. You know, from a story point of view, the, on the American side, the tension between General Horatio Gates and General Benedict Arnold. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I I do talk of of this at length in the book because it is such a famous story. Uh, you have Horatio Gates and Benedict Arnold. At, at the forepart of the campaign, when they begin working together, you're talking in late August when Arnold uh, rejoins uh, the American army near, near Albany. These two generals work together very nicely. Nothing's wrong. There's no problem between the two. And then you have uh, the Battle of Freeman's Farm. 
uh, again, fought on the 19th of September. So a few weeks later, the Battle of Freeman's Farm occurs. It's a battle in which, as I point out in the book, Benedict Arnold commands. Uh, you know, Horatio Gates commands the whole army, but Benedict Arnold commands the forces that fought in the battle. Horatio Gates was not on the field of battle uh, in either case, in the, ba- in the battles of Saratoga, but Arnold was in both battles. So Arnold is very much involved in coordinating the battle and, of Freeman's Farm. And so, as I, I say in the book, and this is one of the kind of the the, the neat sources that I, I, I located during the course of my years of research, and this has never been used before by anybody else, so I'm very excited to bring this one out. Mm-hmm. I, I quote from a letter from an American officer who was there at the time when Arnold comes back to Gates during the battle, and he, Arnold, asks Gates for reinforcements, and Gates says no. And Arnold begs and pleads and, and pushes the concept, saying, please, we need reinforcements because we're kind of losing here in this Battle of Freeman's Farm. You know, we're losing. We need more troops. And according to this American officer who was right there, and he wrote about it just uh, the following day in a letter to a friend of his, uh, he, he says that Horatio Gates pulled his sword out and told Arnold that he, Gates, commanded the army and that he will be obeyed as such, quote unquote. Mm. So Arnold got no reinforcements that day. So clearly there was tension developing <laughs> on the day of the Battle of Freeman's Farm. <laughs> and we're almost, uh, uh, I'm sorry, we're almost out of time. I want to ask you one question that occurred to me. What happened to Burgoyne's army after they surrendered? Well, right. Yeah. So Burgoyne uh, surrenders his army. And according to the Convention of Saratoga, which was the surrender document, if you will, the British were supposed to go, and the Germans too, were supposed to go back to Europe so long as they don't fight in America during the present conflict. It was, a you could say, a gentleman's agreement between Gates and Burgoyne, and they both signed this uh, Convention of Saratoga. So uh, the British and Germans, they're marched out to Cambridge, Massachusetts. They're waiting for the Royal Navy to pick them up. Arrangements are starting to be made for it. Then Congress, down in York, Pennsylvania at the time, receives a copy of the convention, of course, and they're told about what happened. They're not happy. The Congress, you'd think they're thrilled, you know, that takes out an entire army. But no, they're not happy because they're thinking that the British are not going to abide by the terms of the convention because they, the British, don't recognize the United States' existence. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to abide by the terms. Further, they say, okay, even if they abide by the terms, all they're going to do is send these troops back to Europe and then send, you know, replacement troops over to America. It's it's not it's going to be like a one for one exchange. So this is not a good deal. So Congress uh, starts to impose a series of objections to the convention. And some of these things that they impose, uh, accusations basically against Burgoyne, um, uh, some of them are, are well-founded and some of them are not. I actually go into some detail in the book mm-hmm. about this. And the cool thing about this is that other authors might, might talk a bit about the reasons that Congress had for trying to renege on the convention. I actually show in the book the artifacts um, that um, uh, are the, 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 the focus points for the objections. You see, the objections had to do with flags and cartridge boxes, mm-hmm. which are those things that are they carry the ammunition for soldiers. Mm-hmm. And so in the book, there are photographs of these original artifacts, the cartridge boxes, the pouches, oh, and the flags. And Eric, we're, we're just about out of time, but did, what, did they spend the rest of the war in Cambridge, or did they go back to England or Canada? Oh, or? they ended up spending the rest of the war in America. They're actually marched down to Charlottesville, Virginia, eventually. 
and then up to uh, York, Pennsylvania and Frederick, Maryland. They're prisoners of war for the rest of the war. Hmm. Well, Eric, it's uh, been a pleasure talking with you. It sounds like uh, uh, quite a book. Best of luck with it. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate it. Thank you for interviewing me. Eric Schnitzer uh, is a ranger, a park ranger historian at Saratoga National Historical Park, the national park that commemorates the battles around Saratoga, New York in 1777, the turning point of the American Revolution. He and uh, a well-known historical painter, a historical artist, Don Troiani, are authors of a new book called Campaign to Saratoga, 1777. Campaign to Saratoga, 1777. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.